Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Marteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I have a very, very special guest. Uh, I'm, I'm really honored to be speaking to Yo uh, uh, Hegwig Diowisha, or she's better known as Fake History Hunter. She has a huge, huge uh, Twitter account with lots and lots of followers, and her expertise is debunking historical facts. And uh, today, and she has written this wonderful book, which was published by Penguin uh, uh, Publishers, called Fake History, 101 Things That Never Happened. And today I'm really honored to be able to, uh, to speak with her. Yo, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, I need to apologize to you because I know that I kind of butchered your name. Uh, that, that's, that's quite all right. It's <laughs> it's a very very Dutch name that uh, only only Dutch people can really pronounce. <laughs> uh, before we get into the questions and talking about the book, I would appreciate if you could tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in history, and more more particularly why. Why, why are you known as fake history hunter? I've always been obsessed with history for as long as I can remember. As a child, I grew up in a very old house, and my parents also had a, a, an interest in history, and we went to visit museums and castles and things like that. And I remember as a little girl suddenly realizing that there was a past, and I thought it was magical. <laughs> And um, everywhere I looked, I was surrounded by history and I couldn't stop seeing it. And um, what well, I made it my job, my career. I was very lucky with that. And then um, one day I was on the internet, just looking around Twitter for a little bit. And someone shared a photo of uh, 1920s girls dancing. And I thought, there's something wrong with the photo. That's That's not 1920s. And by that time, I had been a historical consultant for film, television, and museums for already a couple of years. And, you know, doing research is was my job, still is my job, and and I really love it. I'm, I'm addicted to it. So I thought, mm. that I'm, I want to find out more about that photo. And then I discovered that it's it was a 1950s photo of people pretending to be from the 1920s. And I posted that on Twitter, and people like that and I thought hmm, maybe there's more fake history on Twitter and well those were famous last words <laughs> it's full of it and so I decided let's go and try to do something about it mm, wonderful story yeah and I must say that I 
there were some of the stories you have in your book and some of the stories you have debunked on your uh, Twitter account. I used to believe in them and I'm not a naive person, but some of them are really difficult to be able to see through. But we'll talk about that. So Fake History Hunter, uh, 101 Things That Never Happened. How did the idea of the book uh, come to you? I know that some of the uh, some of the materials in the book are from your Twitter account, the ones that you have already debunked on Twitter account. But here, maybe for the benefit of the audience, maybe you should also talk about the structure of the book. Like you start with the myth and then you debunk it. And at the end, you have uh, some uh, reputable resources to to prove the points you're making. So can you tell us about the idea of the book? Uh, well, the idea of the book didn't come from me. Um, I, I, it, it, I was, um, when, when my account got a lot of attention uh, in, in the media. I was interviewed by, I think it was the BBC History magazine, mm. and it got a lot of, lot of publicity. And then I got several offers from, from publishers who contacted me and said, we think this might be a good book. Uh, I, I wasn't planning a book. I wasn't planning any books, really. Um, but, uh, well, they convinced me. And so I thought, let's go, let's go write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, the publisher gave me some advice on what they think would work really well. And um, I thought the idea of starting with the myth, you know, because that, that's how I work. That's how I find them on the Internet. That's how I find these myths that they are given to me, they're shown to me, and then I start correcting them. And, uh, you know, this is how most people know the story. So mm. that's the thought, you know, let's let's put the myth at the beginning of the chapter. You know, this is what you probably believe, that you may believe, but you may have read somewhere. And then I start debunking it as hard as I can. <laughs> <laughs> and and I throw everything I've got at the reader. And, you know, then finally I throw in a few sources just to prove that I that I also didn't just make it up uh, because, you know, it is important that you don't really blindly trust anyone just because it's in a book or just because they, um, you know, they're a professor or a, a, an expert or a historian. You know, if if someone can't prove their point, you have to remain, you know, critical. You have to... So that, that that was very important, and uh, that that when I say to other people, um, if you can't prove your claim, it has no value. Then I, I should also prove my claims. You know, just to be be fair. Mm. So that's that's how the book came about. Um, other people said it was a good idea, so uh, I thought let's do it, and and that's sort of how the book works. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, and is was there any selection criteria in these stories? You have 101 fake pieces of history here. Was there any selection criteria or were just random um, things that that you've come across in your career? Um, it, it is it is a, it is a bit random. I, I try to um, I, when I started, I thought I probably should do this in different sections with different themes um, or perhaps per era, but it, because, you know, some errors because of my personal obsession are a bit, um, you know, over. There are many, there are, there are more chapters about certain errors than others. Um, mm. And, you know, some subjects are more popular than others. So it, it was very, uh, I, I, originally I wanted to put some sort of theme or, uh, you know, division in the book. But then I thought, you know what, 
this is this is how it works for me on Twitter. It's very from one chapter from one subject to the other. Um, so mm. I, I eventually I just gave up on trying to put it into little boxes and just went right here. You go. These are all very very different, very <laughs> very strange chapters, and uh, I just put any anything in that I could think of that I that either um, I thought was a very interesting story that. A myth that a lot of people believed, or uh, that I think showed very nicely how to do research, or how to was uh, it was a good example of being a bit of a history detective because mm-hmm. you know that so either the story is important or fun to read, or the research is interesting and fun to read about. Mm-hmm. But in you know in the end, it was also about some some chapters. Uh, simply, we couldn't get permission to use the image. Um, that the story was about, and without the image, sometimes the story doesn't work. So some yeah. the, that's why some chapters had to be replaced by others. Mm. Uh, and you know, some of these I wrote or worked on many years ago, while others uh, I worked on literally days before I put them in the book, <laughs> because <laughs> you know, new new myths keep coming. Uh, and that's that's also very interesting and exciting. And then, you know, then suddenly I said to the publisher, you know, we've got this thing going on now with artificial intelligence, intelligence, yeah. <laughs> artificial intelligence, and this. Um, I've just corrected this story, and I think it might be interesting to put in the book as well. While you know, others I worked on almost a decade ago. So it's 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 it was it's it's a very yeah no there's there's a bit of chaos in the book <laughs> but, <laughs> how but, the book came mm, about mm. but but i when i was reading the book i could still see maybe not so much pattern but there there were a lot of connected themes let's say medieval history of course uh world war pop history but but you're absolutely right there's so many misconceptions and um let's say fake histories about so many different subjects that it's really difficult to to be able to categorize them into uh, some categories but but anyway out, out of um i i am myself a huge fan of medieval history and um i really enjoyed the ones that you've debunked in the in the book one of them is that uh millions of women were accused of witchcraft and burned at stake that's so so let's talk about some of the myths you have in the book we won't cover all but we'll talk mm-hmm. about some so i would appreciate if you could talk about uh women being witchcraft and being burned because of uh doing magic maybe yeah um yeah the, the, there are these claims that uh well we all know about the, the, the witchcraft trials and how women were all burned at the stake and um for some reason we like to connect the worst of history to the to the middle ages it is a very very um welcome target you know the scapegoat uh no dirty things evil things torture uh witchcraft burning uh you you name it we automatically almost in our brains think oh that must be the middle ages um but especially with the witchcraft trials and terrible things that happened because they did happen you know let's not let's not pretend it didn't um uh, that mostly started after the Reformation, you know, after the Middle Ages. It was a post-medieval thing. It was um, a Renaissance thing, an early modern era thing. Um, 
you know, the time that we like to think of as being much more advanced than the Middle Ages. Um, but in reality, in the Middle Ages, the general consensus was um, that witchcraft wasn't a thing. Um, even the church said, no, 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 witchcraft, you know, if you think someone is a witch, um, you're suspicious. Because <laughs> why would you believe that? You have, you know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the Middle Ages, there were witches being uh, persecuted and even, even uh, you know, executed. But the main number of victims came after the Middle Ages. And they weren't millions. They were probably roughly, you know, it's difficult to be sure. It's all, it's all a bit of a guesstimate. Uh, probably about thirty to 80,000 uh, victims of witchcraft, mostly women, but not exclusively. Um, some historians say... It may be as may have been as much as two hundred thousands, which is still an awful number. Of course, it's terrible, but not millions. And people sometimes have, you know, I'm not sure why it's being exaggerated. Um, and you know, it doesn't make it any less bad what happened by saying it was it was, uh, you know, tens of thousands that died. Uh, but it was it wasn't millions, and it's those little things that um, you know a, a lie doesn't make doesn't make the story any better. It doesn't make it any more poignant. It doesn't make you know doesn't give it a bigger impact. So it's you know there's a bit of exaggeration and a and connecting it to the wrong era, which is something people do a lot. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And whenever I talk to my friends, I tell them, look, which burning witches it actually happened you know, most of it happened you know, after the middle ages and during renaissance yeah. they're just, just puzzles it's impossible i've seen it in movies yeah and, and, yeah, and mostly they weren't even burned i know yeah, which yeah. were generally they were uh, you know they were hanged mm. uh but which is also not not nice <laughs> but the burning of people that was done that was for heretics you know there was a special you know they didn't just go around and set fire to people for a laugh. They had rules and laws, and um, you know, if you were accused of witchcraft, uh, you were given this this kind of punishment, but not burning. Yet somehow, in every film, in every television series, yeah. when a witch is executed. Well, you know, start fire. It's it's very it's very fascinating to try and figure out where it, why we wanted to be burning, and it's it's now in the general, you know mind this is what we imagine when we think of the witch trials it has to be burning it's, <laughs> it's always fun to try and figure out why do we think that mm. and there are two other myths about the middle ages one of them is that it's a time where progress simply stopped knowledge stopped and everybody was illiterate and you have uh, the, the myth that you have included in the book is that the middle ages no in the middle ages nobody except the clergy could read and the other myth that is really annoying is that it was just filthy nobody took a bath they they knew nothing about basic hygiene and again you have this one in your book so uh can you talk about these two um these two myths let's say and debunk them yeah the, the, the idea that medieval people could not read or write it, it, it's mostly true uh, the majority of people were not literate or you know what we call literate but uh, it wasn't just the clergy who could read and write because, it, you know, it's very handy to be able to make a few notes, uh, to do some, you know, basic writing. 
Um, but the problem is that we do not have much evidence. And that's because books were very expensive and people wrote them on parchment, which, you know, involved literally uh, getting the skin of an animal and preparing it. It was it, Books were special and, you know, valuable books. That's what, you know, people put in their libraries and were very careful about. And, you know, those they, they survived to this day. But what people, uh, what we seem to forget is that a lot of people, the normal people, the common people, uh, they wrote on, uh, on birch bark, on wood, on pieces of bone, uh, on walls, on, on they, they wrote on lots of things. And I think that there was a lot more writing and reading going on than we think, but it's very difficult to prove because these are all materials that, you know, that they don't last very long. You, you, you try writing on, on a piece of wood and then you throw it in the fire when you no longer need it. Um, but archaeologists have found these things. Uh, for instance, in Russia, in a very specific area, uh, the ground had this certain uh, level of, um, you know, not not quite sure how to describe it, but the ground there somehow managed to um, save birch bark for centuries. And they found all these letters people had written um, and even homework and drawings made by children. And you know they threw someone threw them or they dropped them in in the swamp or whatever, and just for this very small part of the medieval world, we have all this writing from common people, and it, it, it's it's really nice to read. It's you know people writing, um, you know, Dad, can you send me some new socks, <laughs> or um, you know, I love you and you love me, let's get married. It's all these very normal, very familiar. Pieces of writing that that come to us from the past, but we also have these little pieces of wooden writing from the Vikings who also scratched their runes in little pieces of wood, you know, about normal things, common day to day things. So I think there was a lot more, but we can't really prove it because only in a few places here and there it was saved. But if you put that all together, you get tempt very tempting evidence that says that suggests that maybe. Writing was a lot more common than that. And people for a very long time said that literacy was probably 1%. Um, in the last couple of decades, that's already been changed to uh, 10%. So 90% illiteracy is still very, very high. But I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to change that number a bit more in the future. Um, but one of the one of the main things that really annoys me about um the people what people say about the middle age is that it was dirty and filthy uh, you know don't get me wrong compared to our modern very clinical uh, way of life yes um, you know medieval life was dirtier than ours mm. but so was victorian life and roman life but yet somehow when we think about the romans nobody mentions the dirt and the filth <laughs> But when it comes about all the Renaissance, you know, that's sort of on the side. It's not important. But when we talk about the Middle Age, it's almost the first thing people think about. Um, we, we, we immediately imagine someone opening a, a, a window above us and emptying a chamber pot into the street. Uh, we see mud, we see filth, we see people who never bathe. And that is, you know, it's, it, it's mostly nonsense. Um, bathing and washing was very popular. It was a part of daily life. Bathhouses were uh, they, they were fantastic. They were every village, every town had one. 
they even had uh, in some parts of Europe that free bath days. So if you had, didn't have any money, there was a specific day where you could go for free. Um, some workers were given bathhouse tokens as part of their salary, so they could go to the bathhouse three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, people washed and they did their laundry and they cleaned their houses and they cleaned their streets. And I remember reading uh, in, in, in records, people writing about how someone got into trouble with his neighbours for littering. You know, someone threw a little bit of food or something like that on the street and the neighbours came out and they wanted to punch him. <laughs> there was a fight and it had to be taken to court. And, you know, people saying, he was throwing things in the street, so we beat him up. <laughs> and you read that and you go, this does not fit everything Hollywood has been showing me. Yeah. And, you know, the records are so full of these things. And it's almost like as if people, when they're researching history, they look at a page in a book and it's in the old records and it says, um, we have the medieval city and it is the Middle Ages today and we have all these problems with filth. You know, there's filth everywhere. And then they close the book and they say, right, now I know what medieval life was like. Instead of, you know, turning the page where it says... <laughs> So we did something about it. (laughs) And then you get this whole list of these are the new laws that stop people from, you know, littering and making a mess and uh, polluting our water because we need clean water. You know, we need to drink it. We need to uh, make beer. We need to uh, do laundry. So we need. So it's very important that people don't pollute our water sources. And, and you read all these, and you think they have they have more laws on what you can do, uh, you know, about the environment than almost more than we have. And when you start looking at it from that perspective, suddenly you realize that so many things, especially about hygiene and you know general cleanliness of the Middle Ages, is that that people have been teaching and talking about for, for centuries. It's just nonsense. It's very very strange to discover that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about some other myths that you've included in the book uh, maybe more contemporary ones and I guess a timely one what, there's one myth that would never ever go away and every year every Christmas it just comes up again which is Santa wears red because of Coca-Cola and yeah, I guess every year you have to debunk this <laughs> every it's all, it's already started you know it's yeah, November yeah. so <laughs> uh, it is a very tempting one, and um, people seem to have mis seem to have a problem with um, understanding the difference between popularizing and inventing. Because you know, fair due, Coca Cola absolutely popularized that look of Santa. You know, the the, the jolly fat man with the red suit. Um, they when they went full advertising mode uh, with Santa. They spread that image all over the world, and they still do, you know, almost daily. It, 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 you know, they have sort of adopted Santa, to use nice words. Um, but they were not the first. Santa, exactly as he is today, as as he looks today, the same same guy, same suit, same color red, was already, um, you know, in, very popular, especially in America. Um, it was used everywhere, even in advertising for other sodas, which is very, which I found very funny because you know there you was advertising a drink, 
long before Coca-Cola did that. And luckily, this is one of those myths that's quite easy to debunk because we literally have uh, advertisements, uh, in, you know, magazine covers. There is so much art from before Coca-Cola got involved that shows Santa mm. just the way he looks today. But just because they read somewhere that Coca-Cola got involved with Santa and used him everywhere, and then after that, the old image of Santa was sort of forgotten, and people in their brains sort of turned it into Santa was invented by Coca-Cola. Uh, so it's it's you can you can understand where this myth came from, which is not always easy, but in this case, you, you sort of get it. But you know, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, maybe another contemporary one is 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 that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Yeah, again, it, it, it's the same sort of idea. What Thomas Edison did is he got a lot of inventions from other people, mm-hmm. uh, put them in a new fresh package, put a nice bow on top and uh, commercialized it. He was the first one who got an invention that already existed but he showed to the world how you can use it uh, in you know and how it can work and how it can change our lives and um, because he had so much uh, money and support when he got uh, financiers and and other folks and the media to visit his laboratory he said you know he flicked a switch and he said look i've got lights everywhere and i can make them cheap and i can make them work longer and they're, they're really cool and everyone thought, wow, this is fantastic. But we forget that there were uh, light bulbs already being used in public long before Edison got involved. Um, of course, they weren't as good. You know, let, let's be honest, Edison did, did an impressive job of making the light bulb uh, more affordable and smaller and last longer and things like that. And when I say him, I mean his laboratory mm-hmm. and his workers. Um, but you know they had they had they had light bulbs and some of them didn't last very long and some of them were way too expensive to use and you know I'm not saying they were really good but they existed and when you when you want to say that you invent something it's about the first person who did it and not if it's you know not the best one. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and and uh, another. One that I was that I didn't know myself until I came across that one in your book, and it was funny because when when I read about it in your book, then I was listening to another interview somewhere else, and somebody else mentioned the same thing, which is Newton. He, the idea is that he came up with a theory of gravity when an apple fell on his head, but apparently it's wrong, and I didn't know it myself until I got the book. Can you talk about this one, please? Yeah, it's 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 um. I rather enjoyed this one because it used to be, I don't remember the name of the cartoon, but I remember as a child reading a cartoon where Newton was shown being hit in the head with an apple. Same thing with me. uh, (laughs) And I really, uh, and, and, you know, I didn't quite understand anything about gravity or the theory of it all. Uh, That's way too complicated for me. And I'm not quite sure I I do today. But I, uh, but you know, that's an image that uh, that you know that, that stayed with me because as a child you like people getting hurt in cartoons. <laughs> but um, when I tried to figure that one out, I I went to see you know where did the story come from because you know when you grow up you automatically think that's a 
that's a bit too good of a story. You know, it's almost as if someone made it up just so that children in school pay more attention, <laughs> uh, which, you know, it works. But, um, yeah, I tried to uh, – I, I already sort of assumed that it was probably not true because it was such a funny and a cool story. Um, but then I also tried to figure out where did the story come from. And, you know, pretty soon you realise that he, 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 he did have a sort of a revelation when he saw apples falling for the tree in his garden. So there was a tree, there was an apple, it did fall, but he wasn't sitting underneath it. It didn't hit him on the head. And the great thing about Newton is because he was already so well known when he was still alive and very, you know, very respected, is that there were, well, not direct eyewitness accounts, but friends and people who knew him who wrote, you know, how he was talking about what happened. Uh, you know, he he was saying that he saw he saw he said to his friends, "I saw an apple fall from a tree," and that's almost as good as it gets when you're looking for evidence for stories. Um, but it didn't fall on his head, and that is mostly based on a uh, probably on a French book written at the time, which was very popular, um, where one man wrote to a friend uh, that perhaps the apple fell on his head, or Newton's head, uh, and that that story was picked up, uh, put in another book, and before you knew it, it was quite popular, and um, to this day. And uh, that was so fun. That was that was a really fun story to research, where because you, you can almost be sure that that is where you can almost pinpoint the birth of the myth. That is always very very nice to figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, another one was about Nazi salutes, which has Roman origins, which is of course wrong. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, that I again didn't know myself until I read about it in your book, and I found it quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's um, it's probably it was probably just made up in the 18th century or a misconception. Someone made a, a, a very nice painting about Romans, uh, in and they were given a sort of salute, and people loved it. It became a very popular painting, and people decided to. Um, and then suddenly this image of Romans giving each other that salute was slowly woven into other books and stories. And before you knew it, it was everywhere. And then, of course, the fascists in Italy who wanted to give themselves more credit and more value and more importance, um, they decided to do that by you know, stealing history or adopting it or um, making it theirs. You know, because if you have history, somehow you become more important. You know, become more credible. So they say, you know, we are doing, the, we are continuing the Roman way, uh, and they started saluting each other. And you know, in reality, if you would get a Roman uh, with a time machine to 1920s Italy and say, "Oh, look, those people, those fascists are giving each other the Roman salute," he probably would have gone, "What, what on earth are they doing?" Because there is there is no evidence for well for starters for a Roman salute for one that everyone used all the time, uh, but but for one just like it there were salutes similar to it people don't know there were several salutes and greetings and some we know about some we are not quite sure what they look like but they're mentioned here and there, but there is no real evidence of a Roman salute that looked anything like the one the Nazis and the fascists uh, still use unfortunately. Um, till you know, till the 18th century, and 
which you know which is something that happens quite regularly when you try to when you're trying to figure out uh, the origin of a myth it is quite suspicious how often we we end up in the 18th or 19th century uh, you think you know what were they were they making up history on purpose because it happens a lot especially the victorians they are Uh, just a final question Um, we live in the age of information there is data and information everywhere you just mentioned there is AI there are lots of fake videos lots of and there is chat GPT can easily create lots of information or even pieces of history so what, what kind of advice do you have for people who want to sift through all that information and be able to read critically i think the most important thing uh when we are get when we when we're being swapped and swamped and flooded by all these stories is that we look at the the source you know people who are saying these things where do they get them from uh, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true um if someone said you know, I, I was taught this when i was a little girl in school uh, and someone was telling me tall uh, tall stories uh, you know we were taught to say well, prove it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you wanted to fight with someone, you said, yeah, yeah, well, prove it. <laughs> and you should, I think that's a really good thing to keep in your head when you're reading things. Where is the evidence? Where is the proof? Um, you don't have to go deep dive uh, into the archives and just to be sure. But there are so many stories out there that don't even have any references. There are no sources. There are no mentions of uh, history books that they used or archives there's there's nothing people just write a story and people believe it Mm. and you know you have to have to remain critical you have to go why would i believe this why would i believe you who who, know the person who writes it are they an expert are they uh, have they spent lots of years doing research Um, do they know what they're talking about you have to be very critical and um, not don't blindly believe anything anyone ever says. But on the other hand, you have to also be careful not to go too far because you know we we live in a world where people uh, don't believe anything anymore, and that's mm. also not good. We you know when a medical expert tells you something, it's probably you know get a second opinion if you must, but don't just start assuming that all the doctors are always lying because that's also nonsense. So. Try and look as good as you can at the, the the source of the story. Where does it come from? The person who's telling it. Do you, do you think that they know what they're talking about? Uh, can they prove what they claim? And if you have a little voice in the back of your head saying, "Well, this is a bit of a tall tale," you know, chances are that it might not be true. And especially those stories that are somehow made to make one group of people look so much better than another or uh, or worse. Mm. There's often something there that's a bit fishy because, you know, history doesn't always work like that. You know, real history is is, is black and white, but also grey in between. And if it's a very simple story, very one that makes... Uh, uh, something work very very well a very smooth story when it's almost too good to be true it it it, it might be actually be too good to mm-hmm. be true uh thank you very much here for your time it was a great conversation i really really encourage our listeners to first uh, follow you on twitter and then buy the book it's a fascinating book to read thank you